Good morning. All right, we are going to be in Matthew 10. So you can be turning there. I was thinking this week while I was studying, I cannot help but remember, um, and you'll see why as we sort of read it, but I was remembering when I was graduating from college and I studied education in college and I remember moving into that first year of teaching and, you know, you sort of, you learn all the ways, you even apprentice, how many of your teachers or have been? Yeah. So, you know, you apprentice a little bit, you sort of student teach, which is just very, your hand is still very held. And then it just seems ridiculous, right? When you're 22, that you're going to go command a class. Just how's this, how's this doing? Is this punching a little? Okay. Um, I remember when I was, I mean, I turned 22 in August and I got my first class the next week. Ridiculous. And I remember that, um, my teammate who was she was in her 50s, so she taught a long time. She came into the room, and she found me. And, of course, I'm projecting confidence all this time, getting myself hired. Yes, I know exactly what I'm doing. Yes, I'm prepared to educate the next generation. And she came in and found me in my classroom the week before school started. And I was literally laying on the floor crying like a baby. And she was like, this is instilling confidence. <laughs> and I, I'm like, nobody knows that I can do this. This is a terrible idea. I, I said, can you just pray that I don't make these kids dumber this year? That's the, like the most, and I'm thinking about the disciples this week, because we're going to sort of see them get launched. They like, they move out of the classroom. They even move out of student teaching. Um, this is their first year and it is really, really daunting. So as we move forward this morning, we've kind of got a lot to cover. Um, so you listen fast and I'm going to talk fast, but I want you just to remember a couple things as we study scripture at all times. Um, a really, really good study of the word is always a balance. It's a balance between what did it mean then? And what does it mean now? It, it needs to be both of those things when we study scripture. First, we start with, what did it mean then? We have to begin with context. Um, what was going on? What, how was this God's story? And then later we see, how does this apply to us um, today? And so sometimes it, we just have to be careful to not just lift and drop instruction into our life as if the entire Bible is about us. Sometimes the Bible is about God. Sometimes the Bible is telling us his story so that we understand how we have gotten to where we are today and we know who our God is. And so we have both of those things this morning. So we're going to be dipping back into what it meant then, and we're going to be pulling forward into what does it mean now. So um, we're going to be in Matthew 10, and we're, we're clicking through five important things that happen here. It's going to go like this. Um, we're going to talk about the commission. We are going to talk about the kingdom. We are going to talk about the criteria. We are going to talk about the cost. And then finally, we are going to get to what is the comfort and counsel in all this. I did not mean necessarily to use alliteration on this, but once I started with the C's, I'm sorry to tell you that I could not stop myself. Um, there was no fixing it. Okay, starting in verse 1. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So a couple of really important things are about to happen here. Number one, this is something of an ordination. Um, if you'll notice, if you read kind of carefully in verse one, he calls them disciples. And in verse two, he calls them apostles. And so the difference here is that a disciple literally means a student. And an apostle, it means messenger. So this is a really, really big moment in which Jesus is promoting 
his disciples into apostleship. A lot of um, theologians call this whole passage the limited commission, um, which happened during Jesus's life, which would later expand into the great commission, which was after his death. Um, And we'll get to that toward the end of this book. But so at this point, we know that Jesus had prepared them. He had qualified them for ministry. He had taught these guys publicly. He had taught them privately. He had performed miracles in front of them and even with them. They'd been in class for quite a while. Okay. They were prepared. And so um, before we move into the specifics, let's ask, what did it mean then? I see um, three pretty big things happening here. Here's the first one. Um, and, and you'll see it in just a minute. Jesus is now imparting his power, his supernatural power to the disciples. And just remember that up until this minute, they were just dudes. I mean, they were just guys. They were just guys sitting around listening to what he had to say all the time. And so what we're going to see is from here on out, they have power. They are performing miracles of their own right. Okay, they are raising people. They are healing people. And so this is, a, this is a big transference of power. So that's one. Number two is that Jesus has switched. You know, we've been studying Matthew all this time. He has switched from this thing we've seen where he goes, does something awesome, and then he says, don't tell anybody. Right? We've seen it several times. Don't, don't tell anybody what you've seen. Don't tell anybody about me. Okay, you just, you just enjoy it. Just be quiet about it. And what happens here in chapter 10 is it switches from don't tell anybody to tell everybody. Tell everybody about me. And so this is a big public turning out. And that's important for us to remember because Jesus and his people now, his disciples, are about to make some very serious enemies. Okay? That is where we are. the story is turning. It is a new chapter. And so, um, in fact, this is really the first time that Jesus ever explained the personal cost to the disciples. And so this is a pretty daunting speech as we get into it. So he's imparting his power. He's saying, let's tell now everybody about me. And then so this really begins right here, this great divide among the Jews between those who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that they'd all been waiting for, that he said that he was, and those who thought he was a heretic. Uh, The divide stands to this day. And this was the beginning of it. So just try to keep that in mind. Keep those big, big, big ticket items in mind as we work through um, this passage. Because he's about to describe a lot of chaos. Um, And if it sounds harsh to you, just remember, this is the very first tiny little wave of evangelism. This is it. Twelve guys going out in pairs. That's it. Um, and so just remember, at this point, there's, there's no faith in Jesus anywhere. Christianity wasn't even a baby at this point. It was like an embryo. Okay, it's so incredibly fragile. And if these guys faltered, if they, if they sort of got the soft cell version of what they were signing on for, and they, they punked out, Jesus' t- appointed time of death is less than two years away. He doesn't have time to start over. Okay? I mean, he doesn't have time to get a new batch of guys um, who are sturdier. These guys could not be coddled at this point. They needed the full truth up front of what they were staring down so that they could become warriors for the gospel, which they did. So let's, we're going to skip a verse or two and just go to the thesis of this commission. So here is the commission that he gives these guys. It's in verse 7 and 8. This is what Jesus said. As you go, or as you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. 
So here's Jesus saying the kingdom is here. It has one mission. Conquer the devil and cure the world. And honestly, that is the, uh, that's the whole message. The entire rest of this chapter, the entire rest of his speech um, involves traveling details and sort of um, an explanation of how much chaos that message is going to cause. Okay, but that's it. When he said, this is what to preach, it was two sentences. The weighted Messiah is now here according to all the scriptures prophesied about him and he is bringing this whole new kingdom. So it's going to be new salvation. It's going to be new grace. It's going to be a new savior. It's going to be a new community. It's going to require a new loyalty. So these guys are going out with a message. It's time to believe in Jesus. He's the one we've all been waiting for. And I love how simple it is. And here's what encourages me when I think about um, the gospel. It was good news from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Jesus said, this is what you preach. The kingdom is here to heal bodies and souls. That's our kingdom. So when we get really confused and bogged down in our Christian culture, in our context, when it all gets muddy and everyone tells us this is the thing that matters the most, and this is the thing that defines us, and this is where we put all of our eggs in this basket, remember that. Remember that the kingdom came to heal bodies and souls. Jesus sent out these apostles so specifically. He didn't send them out as orators, obviously. He did not send them out as uh, politicians or even really practiced and learned and studied apologists who were prepared to defend all this, who were prepared to talk about all the Old Testament scriptures. And um, he sent them out as public blessings, demonstrating that love and goodness comprise this gospel. Honestly, for me in that little section, this is all I need to know about the heart of Jesus. When he said this, you've been given freely, give freely. Give freely. So in other words, he's telling his apostles, y'all, as you go out, don't hold back. Don't get caught up in this whole deserving versus undeserving conundrum. Don't minister with conditions. Um, don't go forth in a spirit of scarcity. Like, I only have so much love to give. I only have so much power to share. You know, I only have so much good news. There is, this is not a kingdom of scarcity. Give it away, all, and freely, and without conditions. Everyone gets it. Everyone is in. Everyone has a seat at this table. So when I think to myself, what does that mean now? How can I, how can I apply that into my life as a believer Don't you think it's true that humans have a tendency to receive freely but give conditionally, right? I mean, I love grace for myself, but I'm just not sure how crazy we can let this grace thing get with everybody. You know what I mean? But Jesus said, listen, the kingdom is here to cure the world. It is here to heal bodies and souls, all bodies. And all souls. If we're going to take Micah at his word, who told us to act justly and to love mercy, seriously. If we're audacious enough to love mercy for our own self, we better love it for everyone else. I want to love mercy for you and for them and those guys over there and our people here every bit as much as I'm prepared to love it for my own soul. 
And what mercy. I, I, love how, I love specifically what Jesus chose to say here. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those with, le- with leprosy, and drive out demons. Do you see what he's chosen here? He has picked conditions that are incurable, that are beyond the help of a physician, um, that are actually void of life entirely. And I think what Jesus is saying to them and to us is that in him, gosh, this is so encouraging for us. When we come to Jesus, there is nothing about us that could possibly be too sick, too diseased, too advanced, too far gone, or too dead that he could not mend it or raise it back to life. Nothing. We can bring him nothing. We cannot say, you don't know how long I've been in this addiction. You don't know how long I have carried on this relationship that is poisonous. You don't know how bad I've been. There is nothing Jesus cannot heal or bring back to life. And just to make sure, he listed his gospel in two sentences, and he named everything that cannot be cured. Okay? No affliction of mind, body, or soul can separate us from the love of God. So that is sort of the kingdom. It's pretty simple. And it's really, really good news. We've made it complicated, and we've made it weird, and we've made it conditional. But Jesus put it forth as really good news. So that is the kingdom. But so here, he moves on to some criteria. Um, And some of this was really only true for then, and some of it is going to be true for forever. At the time, he says, this is who you're going to go to, verse 5 and 6. These 12, Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So at this point, on this mission, this is Jews only. The Jewish people had the first right of refusal. They get the first offer of salvation, just like God's always said that they would. Uh, It's so worth remembering and honoring that Jesus had a very particular and tender concern for his people. And he looked on them with compassion and he loved them. In fact, he even calls them in this passage, lost sheep. Now he would later reverse this criteria. He would reverse this condition and appoint his disciples to the whole world. So this is for right now. And then what about provisions? What about that criteria? Well, this is what he tells them, starting in verse 9. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. So this is pretty specific, the way that he is sending them. And I ask, okay, what did it mean then? Um. He doesn't say exactly why, but as I studied, I think by this system that he set up, Jesus guided his disciples toward people who were likely more susceptible to the gospel. And he used hospitality 
as that first tier of discernment. So basically, anyone who was willing to host and feed these ministers with grace was more likely to receive their message of grace. I kind of think he sent them to sort of like low-hanging fruit, right? Like, let's go to the kind people first. The haters, we're going to have plenty of time for them later, okay? I think he set... I think he did a couple things. I think he set his disciples up for success here on their first mission because this was scary. This was owning their own classroom. So he said, you know what? Let's go to the nice people. <laughs> let's go to the good people. Let's, let's start out with a positive. Let's, let's put some credits in the bank because um, it's going to get hard as we know. Um, as we know, it didn't always stay this way. So I think he set them up for success and I think he set the gospel up for success. I think Jesus gave the gospel a jump start into receptive hearts. He didn't send his disciples to the synagogue where they would debate. He didn't send them to the public square um, to make big speeches that they would have to defend their position it would, where it would be so much conflict, right, and so much tension. He sent them to kind, hospitable, loving people. I think he was just saying, let's let this gospel get some traction. Let's get a little grassroots support for it because our day of opposition is coming. Um, so let's begin to seed the people with this good news and give it a little bit of strength when it hits all of its opposition shortly. So we have the to whom. How about the how? This is what Jesus said in verse 16. Be as innocent as doves. And he says, this is your posture with people. Give them your greeting, he says. In some versions it says, salute the family. So it's interesting here and worth noting that even though Jesus has now transferred to them all this authority and all this power, um, and he then goes on to describe a kingdom that's going to wreak a lot of havoc, still he tells the disciples to go out courteous and to go out humble. Even with all this power, that they've got. He tells them, do not go in and command this house. You go greet it with peace. So obviously, what does that mean to us now? I mean, what instruction can we take from that in our culture today? Thank you. But sometimes it's just literal. Like, be courteous and humble. Yes. We cannot prioritize doctrine over love ever, 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 no matter how right the doctrine is, no matter how true it is. Listen, it's a fact that people may hate us because of Jesus, but let's not ever give them a reason to hate Jesus because of us. You know what I'm saying? What's the cost? So we've got this commission, we've got this kingdom, we've got this criteria. What's the cost? This gets rough. 16. I'm going to repeat this verse because I'm going to come back to it. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, 
you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. Let's just pause there for a second. Oh, man. You know that up until this day in the, in the, in the gospel, the disciples probably likely imagined that they were about to be princes. You know, everybody thought Jesus was going to be a king on the throne. And here Jesus tells them they will more likely be prisoners. This is a pretty tough moment of truth. I have so much tenderness for the disciples to have to hear that and still go forth. It's interesting because in verse 6, at the beginning, Jesus called the people of Israel lost sheep. But now, he calls them wolves. Do you see that? And I was trying to reconcile that this week as I was studying. Like, which is it? I mean, at the beginning, you said, I'm sending you out to my precious lost sheep. They're wolves. Like, what is it? Which one? How are we supposed to be here? And it occurred to me as I was praying through that, because I didn't know how to teach it, they were both. And so were we. People of God are lost sheep that sometimes act like wolves. When we are vicious and aggressive and defensive on the outside, we're usually just scared and threatened and confused on the inside, right? The more aggressively someone comes at me, the more I'm inclined to think, oh, you got some stuff. You got some stuff. And when I overreact and when I lash out at someone, Jesus is like, you got some stuff. That's you. It's an inside job. Here's the problem with this wolf-sheep conundrum. We're not great judges, right? I mean, God's kind of told us this a hundred times. Like, you're terrible at being a judge. And that's why I'm the judge. So, when we have this sort of conflicting instruction from Jesus, when it comes to this sort of character discernment that he is calling us to, I guess all we can really try to do with all of our might is to determine if someone is a wolf in sheep's clothing, in which case Jesus' instruction is pretty clear. Move on. Jesus said, when you have a wolf, wipe the dust from your feet Bring your peace right back into your heart that they stole from you and move on. That's exactly his instruction. But we should try first to figure out if instead they are simply a sheep in wolf's clothing, right? You know, some of the prickliest wolves turn out to be sheep. And I guess for me, I just, I'd rather suffer a wolf a bit too long and come away with some, some scars, maybe. Than to find out he was really a sheep and I shook the dust off my feet too soon. There is a time to walk. And I want you to hear me say that. I want you to hear Jesus say that. There's a time to walk. He doesn't submit us needlessly to harm. But let's just err on the side of grace for as long as we can. For as long as we can to give grace its chance to work. So... Jesus goes on and tells them what to expect, y'all. Heavy. Verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. 
but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If the head of the house, which is Jesus, has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So he says to them, expect to be hated. It's at the root of all the rest of this, the whole rest of the passage, and it's a bitter root. This is the first time Jesus has ever said this to them. And I'm just so, my heart just feels so broken for them to have to hear that and how hard this was going to be. They're starting to understand the kingdom for really the first time here. And I am so empathetic. I hate to be hated. I hate it. And this is the condition of the rest of their lives. You're going to be arrested and flogged. Your own families are going to turn on you. Some of you are even going to die. And it's all on account of me. That's what it's going to cost you to embrace Christianity. It's hard for us to imagine because the gospel has gone out to the whole world like God said it would. And here we sit in Austin, Texas, free, right? Members of the family grafted in. It's hard to imagine how polarizing this message was in Jesus' generation. And how high the cost was. We're so removed from this high cost. Jesus, what Jesus is saying here is, they're basically calling me a devil. They're saying, if they're going to call the head of the household a devil, then you are going to be considered sons of the devil. They'll say, I represent darkness and that you do too, as my disciples. And the thing is, everybody was so wrong. They were so wrong about Jesus, and they thought they were so right that he sincerely was a power of dark. So when I think about what does that mean for us now, it's very safe and even appropriate, right, for people to hate the devil. That's, we stamp that with approval. So when we align a certain person or even a group of people with what we call the devil's interests, we give ourselves permission to hate them too. Do you know what I mean? We do this. It's how we dehumanize someone or a whole, whole group of people in the name of Christ, right? We attach these dark characteristics to them, and we're wrong sometimes. And we say, because of that, we reject you. We reject you as a whole. You have no part in us. That happens all the time. There's this hate website out there. I can't remember what it's called. Somebody showed it to me. It's just kind of lunatics. But um, I'm on their hate website. And so obviously I need to call them lunatics. And... And their whole mission is to find Christian leaders in our culture that they need to warn everybody is a heretic, and I'm one of them. Um, For reasons like, um, I supported the new pope, and I have an open arms, you belong with us no matter what policy toward the gay community. 
and in other things. I got a whole list. And, and it's not that they are calling me, it's not that they're saying, she's, oh, we don't like her doctrine, right? Or we don't like her theology or, or heretic, right? Son of Beelzebub. This is what Matthew Henry says, said about this. Those that paint the devil on others' clothes have him reigning in their own hearts. And I just think as a people, as Christians, we need to be so careful about painting the devil on other people's clothes. Especially whole groups of people. That's almost never true. You can never look at a whole group of people and say, everybody, always, never. We need to just be so caught. People do that to our own Jesus. They painted the devil on his clothes and everybody who went with him. So the suffering that Jesus describes, verse 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Oh, man. That's tough. <laughs> Here's the truth. And we can have that see the whole gospel to bear it out. Jesus did come to bring peace, but not the kind of peace people thought. That's what he's explaining here. Um, They thought he would bring peace politically. They thought he would bring um, wealth and power, all the amenities they'd been denied as an oppressed people. So what does that mean now? It's tricky because sometimes we get, especially in American culture, we're so removed from this level of hardship. This is just it's so different from what we experience. So we get tricked sometimes into thinking or believing that the gospel might shield us from trouble. But in fact, the gospel exposes us to trouble. I don't have to tell this church that for one hot second. If we, if we press into the gospel guess what? It's going to send us to hard places. It's going to send us to hurt and broken and messy people. It is going to require us to say yes when everybody else gets to say no. Uh, It's going to require us to say no when everybody else gets to say yes. It demands of us things like forgiveness, which is horrible, right? And reconciliation, advocacy. Advocacy is harder than you think. People don't like it. Sacrifice. This hard work of community. Y'all, we got to work for this. It is hard. Wouldn't it be easier to walk? Humility. And the truth is, in a world that largely denies Jesus, we should expect to feel the effects of that rejection as his people. So I guess the upside of that is, If you hurt for the sake of the gospel, if your heart breaks for people, if you, if you lay in bed at night and you are just, you're, you're hurting for this world, you're hurting for suffering, you're hurting for injustice, 
you crave it to all be set right and your heart feels broken over it. I guess what that means is you're doing it right. That's what that means. That's, that's the cost of the gospel. We don't get to just slip and slide our way complacently through a comfortable world where everything is about us and we get to just push anything off the plate that makes us feel uncomfortable. It's a hard gospel and there's a cost. So having said all that, for heaven's sakes, what is our comfort and counsel? (laughs) You're like, I'm really glad I came this morning. This is fun. I like this talk. There is comfort and there is counsel in Christ, always. Several points that were true then, thank goodness, and true now. Um, So this is what we see here in verse 19 and 20. I love this. When they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Don't worry about clever words. Don't worry about awesome speeches. The spirit will do that work. That must have been such a comfort to these guys, these rough guys. These were not educated men, okay? They were not prepared to go out into the public sphere and be hated for their message, right? This is tough. And Jesus just says, I got, I got the words. The one thing that you lack the most, I will supply. We get that too. We get to live in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit every second of every single day. We get to walk into every difficult scenario, every complicated relationship, every hard conversation in the power of of the Holy Spirit. So very few of us are Pauls, right? Just gifted speakers and theologians. Most of us are like Peter and Andrew and James and John. So ordinary. The good news about this gospel, the good news about the Holy Spirit, is we really don't need to worry about always having the right words. We just need to worry about having the right hearts. That's it. In fact, I think God is probably, he needs more people right now in our generation concerned more about their hearts than their talking points. We got enough talking points in the world. We got enough blah, blah, blah going on about the gospel all the time. I would love to see our generation sort of rise up with a heart for God and let him worry with all the words. And we're just never, never alone. I cannot tell you as someone who has found herself in a position to use words to talk about God for a living, that is such a comfort to me, that God supplies them. What he needs from us is the courage and the yes. The courage and the yes. And he will supply the words. We're never alone. So that is an enormous comfort. This is what he says in verse 26. So do not be afraid of them. Right. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. And what is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid because you're worth so much more than sparrows. Oh, that is so dear. I think fear robs our peace even more than circumstances do. The fear of it all, the unknown of it all, the worry of it all. And what Jesus says to us in verse 28, no one can kill your soul. You know this if you've lived long enough. God protects and nurtures our souls in the midst of suffering. It's crazy. Those of you who have been through suffering, kind of held fast in the grip of God, know it's true. It's, all, it's, it's literally almost supernatural that God delivers it all. Everything we need, peace. So even when everything around you is falling apart, when everything is going wrong, okay, God protects our souls. The pearl of prize is untouched. So for us, that means soul work should have a very central place in our lives. And I have to really, really work at this. I'm not by nature an introspective person. I'm a little bit of a doer. I'm out here. I'm kind of, I find God in in movement. And so for me to have to really be quiet and still and make sure that I am taking good care of my soul in the grace of God, that is how we, this is how we do it. And I ask, am am I spending more time on fear or am I spending more time on soul care? Prayer. Silence, scripture hidden in our heart, good community. Nobody can take those from us. Nobody. I don't care what happens to you. I don't care what happens to your body. I don't care what happens to your family, what happens to your world. Nobody can rob us of those prizes. God knows every last hair on our head. That's how much he's paying attention. Like, that is not even something we're aware of. We don't even know that number. And yet God knows it. That's how dear every last bit of us is to God. Our bodies, our kids, our futures, our fears, our dreams, he has it all in hand. He is watching. He is listening. He knows the status of every last little detail. Jesus told us that not even a sparrow dies outside of God's sovereignty. And surely, we are worth more than the sparrows. The hard truth is that sparrows do fall from skies. Life is hard. We are not shielded from suffering because we are believers. But God is not asleep at the, God is not asleep at the wheel. And then this is my favorite part as we kind of round this out. I love how Jesus says in verse 26, There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Everything, you guys, is going to come to light. Everything. I don't care how distorted this life all gets, no matter how much you are misunderstood, um, no matter how much you are mischaracterized or maligned, no matter how confusing and dark and sad things seem or things get, it'll all be made clear one day. Everything that was ever wrong will be made right. Every 
injustice will be exposed and healed. Every attack on our faith or character will be defended. Every lie will be uncovered. Every loss will be restored. We do not have to defend ourselves or explain it or prove it because God will have it all back. Every bit of it. Everything that was ever wrong will be right. That is a good kingdom. And Jesus told us in verse 33, this is so dear, the very last bit. Whoever acknowledges, 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Jesus is saying this, you honor me now and I will honor you forever. No indignity will be ignored. No loss will be forgotten. No faithfulness is unseen. He even tells us at the end of the passage, I will even honor everyone who honors you. Even someone who does something so small for you, like gives you a cold cup of water when you're thirsty, I will honor him like a prophet. Every small act of kindness and faithfulness and obedience will be rewarded. It'll all be repaid. So great is the love and affection that God has for us. None of this is in vain. None of it. When it's hard, it is all in vain. Every bit of it leads to redemption. Every bit of it leads to restoration. Every bit of it leads to healing. And it all leads to glory. So if this, all this, this sacrifice and courage and faithfulness and obedience and struggle seems daunting. This is the last verse I want to read you. Let's close with this tiny little inclusion. It explains it all. Gives the whole commission its depth. Verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This whole thing, um, this belief in Jesus and all that comes with it, the whole life that comes with it. All this loyalty and bravery. Here's the trick. It's how we actually find life. It's this teeny little secret. It's this, this sneaky secret to the kingdom that this sort of life in Christ, it actually leads to joy. The, the victories actually outweigh the losses. And the community overpowers the rejections. The healing, it overtakes the hurts. And I am here to tell you that love wins. It really does. In my opinion, I don't think we just find life in heaven one day. I think we find it now. We find it in the here and now. I'll tell you this. Even if there was no heaven, even if there was no God, I still think that he gave us the best way to live. I think this is how to do it. I think that this is how we find life. Living open-hearted. Living gracious. Living innocent and kind and forgiving and generous hospitable, hopeful, thankful, connected. I think God's given us the winning formula, not just for eternity, but for now. I think this kingdom is worth the cost.
and there is no better commission, and there is no greater comfort than Jesus. Will you pray with me?